scripture tonight is uh, Galatians five sixteen through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. I shared with you that I've been reading this book, The Starfish and the Spider, this summer, and, and, and I like a lot of it. Um, some of it, though, strikes me as a bit naive. Uh, one section, the authors were using the illustration of Wikipedia and and how it's self-governing, and uh, nobody's graffiti stays up very long. And they, they drew from that the conclusion that human beings were essentially good. And I thought, well, huh, um, how about Darfur? <laughs> you know, how about uh, Palestine and Israel? Um, is that really an illustration that proves that human beings are, are essentially good? And the more I thought about it, I thought, well... Certainly, it's an illustration that human beings can collaborate and do good things together, and that's a wonderful thing. But what if you locked all the Wikipedia users in a room and asked them to to live together for a while uh, with a budget uh, and maybe work through disagreements? Uh, I I think we might see see another side of human nature. the, The Bible is not really pessimistic about human nature as much as it is realistic about human nature. Uh, the Bible has a high view of human beings as created in the image of God and, and so capable of wonderful things like uh, Wikipedia. Uh, but the Bible is also very realistic about the effect of the fall on our lives and particularly our ability to be in relationship. Uh, first couple chapters of the Bible, you have God creating the first human beings. Uh, they turn from each other and from God, and by the third chapter, you have the first murder. And it's, it's, a, it's a narrative arc that you see repeated again and again through Scripture that there, there is a power at work in the world that drags us away from community towards violence and, and hurting one another. Sin leads to the shattering of community. And, and one of the things that we've been talking about this summer is, is how significant that is to God's purposes. Because remember, God is uh, on a mission. Uh, he himself lives in perfect community, and he has created his people to reflect that kind of love to the world and to draw uh, others looking for love into that loving circle. And that ultimately is why Paul plants a series of house churches in the mountains of Turkey, a region that was called Galatian then. 
He wanted to uh, lead people into God's love by preaching the gospel and form them into communities in a way that would draw their neighbors to the love of God. And they had begun well. But somewhere along the way, they began to embrace a divisive legalism that had started to rip apart their relationships. And so last week, we looked at where this had got them. Paul was calling for them to love. In verse 14, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by another. So that was the problem that the Galatians were facing. They were wrestling with legalism. The legalism had led to the disruption of their community. And now Paul calls them to love. So where does a community find the power to love? Well, the temptation, I think, is that we're tempted to turn back to law. When you're struggling with loving well, when you're struggling with caring for another person, when you're struggling with working through disagreements, the first temptation is always to set up rules about how you're going to handle it, to, to make goals, to, to kind of have resolutions about, I'm going to be kinder, uh, I'm going to be less angry, I'm going to choose to forgive, I'm just not going to worry about that anymore. But the problem is, those resolutions never work. You can't will yourself into loving better. It just doesn't work that way. And let's not forget what Paul has taught us in Galatians. He says it's not, a, it's not all just a fair fight. There is sin reigning in our flesh that is working against loving well. And there are these stoichia, these powers, that are, that are also at work, uh, working against the community, trying to keep us from loving well. So whenever Christians come together and attempt to love like the Trinity, whether It's as roommates or as a family or in a marriage or in a small group, uh, a group of people moving into Park Ridge. Wherever you are trying to live like the Trinity and love like the Trinity, you are on the tip of the spear, as it were, uh, of God's purposes in the world. And so you are, when you're trying to live that way, when you're trying to live in community, you are pressing into uh, the resistance of, uh, of the enemy against us. So, again, we ask, where do we find the power to love? Paul provides an extended answer there in 16 and 18. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The deepest part of ourselves, the redeemed part of ourselves, longs to love. The part where Christ lives in our center, the part where the Holy Spirit has set up residence, longs to love. But we still live in the flesh, and the flesh is essentially selfish and self-focused, and it is at war against the loving spirit. So what's the solution? Paul says the solution is to walk by the Spirit and you won't yield to the selfishness of the flesh. Now, I've shared a couple times that we've gone through this summer that I preached through Galatians 20 years ago and learned a lot then. 
But one of the wonderful things about the Bible is that when you study it again, you, you learn new things. And one of the things I, I, I learned this week is that when I preached this 20 years ago, I hadn't paid attention to verses 14 and 15. I hadn't realized that this wonderful passage on walking in the Spirit was essentially part of a broader discussion about love, about community, about living uh, in fellowship with each other. So the way that we love each other is by walking in the Spirit. This is not a passage that was intended for you to take in your quiet time, do a word study on kindness, and ask the Lord to make you kind. That's not a bad thing, but that wasn't how they originally read it. This was written to a community to help the community understand how the community was to love each other. Matter of fact, we mentioned this in the Greek. It's much more obvious. The verbs are all plural verbs. Verse 16 literally says, But I say, everyone in the community must walk by the Spirit. And then everyone in the community won't gratify the collective desires of the flesh. That would be a more literal reading. Or verse 18, but if everyone in the community is led by the Spirit, then nobody in the community is under the law. And then all the verbs uh, in the rest of the passage are are plural. So this very much would have been a a discussion about how a community walks in the Spirit. And and I know this is hard for me to think about. If you've been raised in the West, we we just are oriented to think about me and Jesus. And okay, I get this. This is, uh, this is a little discussion about how I can be uh, more at peace. But it really wasn't written that way. It was written to a community trying to discern how they were to love well. Now, before we go any farther, I want to talk for just a moment about the community that you're a part of. And obviously, you can't apply this to 250 people. I'm not asking you to. This summer, we've used the phrase... Who are your people? And we've defined your people as those people that if you have a horrible nightmare at 3 in the morning, you can call and have them pray for you. Those are your people. And what I've uh, pleaded with you is is to make sure that you have three or four or five uh, people that you can share about anything with and, and can call in the middle of the night with a problem. And so when I talk about Uh, walking in the Spirit as a community, I don't want you so much to think about everybody in the room doing this together. I want you to to think about who your people are, uh, the people you're in closest relationship with. Um, Well, let me suggest that the first way we walk in a community as a Spirit is we track the work of the Spirit in our community. Let me explain what what I mean by this. In the early church, the the idea of the Holy Spirit was not a theory or an abstraction. It wasn't a symbol. The Holy Spirit was the real presence of Christ in the midst of the community. And the idea of experiencing the nearness and the presence and the fruit of the Spirit in the community was a real tangible idea. Theologian Gordon Fee, and if if we have a chance to put up this quote, um, put it like this in in a great book on the Holy Spirit in Paul's letter. He says, The Spirit is not lightly called the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Paul's teaching. Not only has the coming of Christ changed everything for Paul, 
so too has the coming of the Spirit. In dealing with the Spirit, we are dealing with none other than the personal presence of God Himself. Absolutely central to Paul's theology of the Spirit is that the Spirit is the fulfillment of the promises found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That God Himself would breathe on us and we would live. That He would write His law on our hearts. And especially that He would give His Spirit unto us so that we're indwelt by Him. What is crucial for Paul is that we are thus indwelt by the eternal God. The gathered church and the individual believer are the new locus of God's own presence with his people. So, Paul in the New Testament will build on the Old Testament model of the temple or the tabernacle. And when he does that, when he says that we're the temple of God, he's drawing on the theology of the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God plans to move from Mount Sinai into the tabernacle to begin dwelling with his people. But his plan is sabotaged by Israel's sin with a golden calf. And, and if you've read that anytime, you probably remember, what does God say? After they sin with a golden calf, God says, that's it. My presence is not going to go with you. I'm going to send you to Israel or the promised land, but I, my presence is going to go with you. And Moses prays one of the most profound prayers of the Old Testament. And he says, God, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anybody know if you're pleased with me and your people if you don't go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So God's presence with Israel is what distinguishes him from all other people. When Paul teaches that you and I, the church, are the new Israel, and that in just the same way, we are distinguished by God's empowering presence. And here's what's interesting about this. There's a paradox. At conversion, the Holy Spirit enters all of our lives. When we come into the church, the Holy Spirit is present. And yet, there also in Scripture are the commands to be filled with the Spirit. So, an individual in a community can experience less or more of the Spirit's presence. Uh, the Puritans used to speak about the thickness or the thinness of the Spirit. And they talk about seasons in which the Holy Spirit was thick, his presence was thick, seasons in which he was thin. And then uh, other Puritans talked about the manifest presence of God. And so there, there's this idea that we're marked by the presence of the Spirit, uh, but that presence can be felt in lesser or greater degrees. Now, how can you tell if the Spirit's active or dormant in your midst, in your, among your people? Well, this would be a whole sermon in and of itself. The New Testament talks about a lot of ways. Corinthians talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Luke talks about uh, witnessing boldly in the Spirit. Here, we tell by the fruit of the Spirit. So the way you tell whether or not the Holy Spirit is active in, among your people is by tracking the Spirit, by trying to discern His fruits. And Paul starts off in kind of a, a way of contrast by describing a community that's not walking in the Spirit. And he, he gives 15 characteristics of, uh, of what your community is going to look like if the Holy Spirit is not active in your midst, if you're not yielded to the Spirit. This is, these are the kind of things that are going to uh, happen among you. And, 
Bobby read them. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, these these vices are all over the place, but at the core is self-centeredness and egocentricity, and they all destroy community. So this is a picture of what happens in your community when you're not yielded to the Spirit. And then verses 22 and 23 describe what happened when a community is yielded to the Spirit. Uh, When we're led by the Spirit, as, as a people, we love one another. We have joy in one another. We have peace with one another. We're patient with one another. We're kind to one another. We're good to one another. We're faithful in our commitments to one another. We're gentle in our dealings with one another. We're self-controlled with our passions when they're stirred up with each other. So what Paul's doing here is he's giving us a diagnostic tool to discern the presence of the Spirit among our community. So think about that for a moment in the, in the place where you walk. Do your people experience joy in one another's gifts and accomplishments? Or rather, is there simmering jealousy? Are your people patient with each other when you all disagree and disappoint each other? Or are you quick to say or write hurtful things? Are your people kind and good and faithful in their conversations? Or do they go behind one another's backs and engage in divisive gossip? Are your people self-controlled? Are they temperate, for example, in their use of alcohol? Do the men and women in your community who are single treat one another respectfully as brothers and sisters in the Lord? Or would you say that the community you're a part of is sliding towards impurity? Is there the abuse of alcohol, coarse humor? Are the single men and women or the married men and women using one another emotionally and physically? So this is the first way a community moves towards being led by the Spirit. They, they discern uh, the relative presence or absence of the Spirit in their community. Well, second, we're talking about how is a community filled with the Spirit. Well, second, I believe we, we relate to each other as those who have crucified the, the flesh. Five. 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And, and I, I think even though it's this short verse, it's very critical to how Paul views the community and how he views being in community because he defines the Galatians, who frankly are struggling quite a bit, as people who belong to Christ and who have crucified the flesh. It's an aorist tense. It's an event that happened in the past with a definitive result. He says, when I see you, parentheses, knuckleheads, when I see you, 
I see men and women who have crucified the flesh. I see men and women who have said no to the old ways and yes to the new. I see men and women who have rejected a life of self-centeredness and focused on a life of service to Christ. I see men and women who have walked away from a formal lifestyle oriented around gratifying their own pleasures and are now pursuing Christ. That's what he's saying. That's how I relate to you. So I think when we relate to each other, it's crucial that we relate to each other, yes, as sinners, but sinners who have crucified the flesh. See, there's a difference. And this may be a fundamental difference between AA and the church. Is it, If you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. But beneath that, you've crucified the flesh. Beneath that, you belong to Christ. Beneath that, you are redeemed. My, my daughter Ashley worked at Disney World this summer, and I heard this story about a guy who worked at Disney World um, who every time he saw one of the little girls come in in a princess suit, or costume, I guess. You don't say a princess suit, do you? Of, uh, it's, it's been a few years. We haven't had a lot of princess uh, outfits around the house lately. Um, he, he said every time he saw a little princess come in, he, he had an autograph book, and he went up to her and he said, Princess, would you sign my book? And I thought, what if we treated each other like that? Prince, would you sign my book? Now, what does this look like? And I, I, This is tricky to tease out, and I'm just going to use one illustration um, suppose a close friend calls you, one of your people, and uh, he says, man, I, I need to have breakfast with you. So, so, and by the way, that's one of the distinguishing marks of, of having people. Your people are the people who when they call and say, i got to have breakfast with you, you have breakfast with them. You clean the books, and you go to pizza wherever you go. And he says, you know, I really blew it. I, you know a little of my struggle with, with porn in college, and I thought I'd get a handle on it as soon as I got married, but that didn't fix it. And I, uh, my wife was on a road trip this week, and I, and I just really goofed up, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I should tell her or not. I'm just all torn up about this. Can you meet with me? Now, it seems to me that, that at that moment, there's, there's a critical uh, decisions that need to be made about how we relate to each other. And it sort of defines how we move into community. It seems that two approaches are very common. One is you, to minimize the sin. Oh, brother, you know, all guys struggle with that. You know, you're being too hard on yourself. The other approach is to maximize the sin. Man, we just talked about that last week. I can't believe you do that. The passage suggests a third approach. You relate to your brother on the basis of who they are in Christ. And this is not easy. But when they share their sin with you, you, you grieve with them. You, you acknowledge, wow, that's really wrong. That hurt you. That hurt her. Oh, man, I, my heart breaks with you. Oh, I'm so sorry. But you also call out the gold in them. You also call out the redeemed person in them. And and you say, you know, there's one thing I know about you, though, brother, is I know you love your wife. 
I see how committed you are to her. I see how much you long for purity. I know you've had me pray about that. And and I'm going to walk with you. And we're going to watch Christ's life released in you as you get a handle on this thing. Because the person I know, the brother I know, is pure. See, it's a very, very delicate balance. But I think it's an important one. As we have these conversations that matter. That, yes, we acknowledge sin, but we also, at an even more profound level, acknowledge that we have crucified the flesh and that we are redeemed. Now, let me suggest a third way that a community can walk in the Spirit. Verse 25, we keep in step with the Spirit. The Greek word for walk here... um, is different than the one verse in, used in verse 16. It has more the idea of walk in line with or, or keep in step with. Hear how a couple translations handle it. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Or the common English Bible. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit. Philip's translation. If our lives are centered in the Spirit, let's be guided by the Spirit. The New Living Translation. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Now, Paul does this a lot, and uh, uh, theologians call it the the imperative leading to the indicative, or, or rather the indicative coming out of the imperative. The idea is, this is who you are, so live that way. Paul never tells you to just live that way. He says, this is who you are, so live like who you are. If you're a princess, live like you're a princess. If you're a prince, live like you're a prince. Since you're people of the Spirit, he says, conform your life to the Spirit and your relationships. Allow the Spirit to shape your relationships. Follow the leading of the Spirit in your relationships. The temptation, of course, is to go back to the law. Oh, I'm so convicted. I'm so convicted about the the pornography or whatever it is that you struggle with. That's it. I am going to put this thing on my computer and I'm going to be held accountable and I'm never going to do it again. All that's heading in the right direction, but it can easily be just another rule. Paul says, you want to love your wife and avoid pornography? Follow the Spirit. That's where the power is. And sometimes that's as simple as as beginning with a cry to the Lord for the Spirit to help us. J.I. Packer in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, says, all who are realistic about themselves are from time to time overwhelmed with a sense of inadequacy. All Christians, time and again, are forced to cry, Lord, help me, strengthen me, enable me, give me power to speak and act in the way that pleases you. Make me equal to the demands and pressures which I face. We are called to fight evil in all its forms in and around us, and we need to learn that in this battle the Spirit's power alone gives victory, while self-reliance leads only to the discovery of one's impotence and the experience of defeat. So this idea of conforming or keeping in step with the Spirit, I think, begins with inadequacy in prayer. That's where the Spirit-filled life begins. I do not know how to love my wife. I do not know how to love my coworker. I do not know how to love my boss. I feel incapable of changing my feelings towards my mother. Whatever it is, you move to a place of inadequacy and cry out to the Lord to empower you. That's where it begins. 
Now, I also think what this refers to is cultivating a present awareness to the Spirit's work in your conversations. And we've talked about this. It's, it's very difficult to describe, but if we're going to have conversations that matter with each other, whether that's with your child or your wife or your husband or your neighbor, we need to learn how to keep in step with the Spirit in the conversation and not follow the preset, socially acceptable conversational pattern. And so many of my conversations are, I have to work so hard against this, and we all do because we're all trained from infancy to shut our mind off at the party because we don't want to be there anyway, and you can't hear over the band at the wedding reception, so you just chick, 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 and we all know how to have conversations like that. They don't accomplish much. And at a deeper level, we all have a way of sort of manipulating one another into a certain kind of response pattern. And if you're not on your game, you just get in line and follow along. How different would it be if we could learn in our conversations, let's say you're going out to dinner tonight, what if you just wiped the deck? What if the conversation came out of the spirit instead of this socially preconditioned, how are you, how are you, how are you, where's the check? I mean, this could make for some really awkward conversations. And, and it might mean, you know, just... I guess we're all different. For me, when I, when I don't know what to do, I ask a question. Because that way I control the conversation and I won't get hurt. I don't know what you do, but we all have our ways of controlling things. I'm learning to stop doing what I naturally do and see what God might want to do. So try that tonight in your conversation. If it doesn't work, I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> Just one last thought on that. I, I don't know if it's an occupational hazard or the pastor. Maybe you struggle with it too. There is this incredible desire in me when you share a need to help you solve your problem. And I don't think it's just pastors. We're the worst at it because that's what you pay me for. I mean, if every time you have a problem, I say, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to lose my job. But... <laughs> I don't think that's what the Spirit is always doing. Sometimes the Spirit doesn't want to solve your problem. So let's resist that sense of, have you read this? Or Now last, and then we're going to close, this idea of keeping in step with the Spirit. I also think it has something to do with how we form community as a community. Uh, maybe you don't know who your people are. Maybe you had great people in Denver and you've moved here and you're looking for people or you're a grad student that just came in and you're trying to find people. This is where my mindset shifted a lot as we've been preaching through this this summer. In the past, I saw it very much in the spider model of our job is to create structures for you to find your people. Now, I don't think the church is all a, a starfish. The church still has structures. This church still has leadership. It's a combination. But I'm increasingly seeing that the richest community happens when you and the power of the Spirit create it. And we just fertilize it. Three times this week, three wonderful women in our body, Suzanne Hassel and two others, came up and said, I got this idea for uh, some community this fall. Now, I've been praying all summer about community for the fall. 
And the Lord keeps saying, nothing. And I've been panicking. And this week alone, three ladies say, I've got, I've got an idea, I've got an idea, I've got an idea. I want to encourage you to follow the guidance of the Spirit as you seek out community. And to, to get, have the freedom to create community in new ways. And this could get risky too, friends. It also might mean uh, uh, maybe eventually giving birth to new communities or reshaping community. I mean, when you let the Holy Spirit in, you don't know where it's going to go. Or he's going to go. Now here's my last question. Are you willing to follow him in your relational patterns? Are you really willing? You know, maybe you're here and you've just decided, I, you know, I wish Doug would move on to something else because I'm not going there. I've been hurt. I'm not in a place in my life where I, I want to try that again. Thank you. Are you open to where the Spirit will lead you? Is your small group open to where the Spirit will lead you? It is impressive that there is not more graffiti on Wikipedia. But living out Christianity with your people is a lot harder than editing an online website. You fight the flesh, you fight the stoichia, and the strategic purposes of God are at stake. Loving well in community is the hardest thing you'll ever do. So track the spirit. Treat one another as those who've crucified the flesh and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.